0: Nearly 11 years ago now, I experienced one of the most significant days of my life. On a sunny August Saturday, I got dressed up and met about 200 or so friends or family at a church. And as I stood up front and I waited and I watched and I shed a tear or two as my bride walked down the aisle to meet me. Looking back, my wedding day still feels like a blur of smiles, music, speeches, and photos. (laughs) However, the most important part of that day is very clear, and it's when we exchanged vows. When, before God, we entered into a marriage covenant together. I don't think there's any way that I could have understood how significant that covenant is back then. But I was aware of a few things. I knew, I did know that it was a wonderful thing. I knew that it was a serious and solemn thing. I knew that it carried the inherent risk of failure. And we could fail the covenant. And thus, I knew that it needed to be heeded. I had to keep my vows. In a similar and yet much greater way, how significant is God's covenant with us, his people? And we can't fathom what it meant for an infinite, holy God to pledge himself to sinful, frail people. But we should know a few things. I mean, we need to be seeing and be learning how wonderful a thing it is to have God as our God. It is quite literally the best thing to ever happen to us. And we need to know that God's covenant with us is serious and solemn. We need to be aware of the the risk and danger of failing the covenant. And we need to know, thus, that his covenant is to be heeded, to be followed. Today, I want us to get a a good picture of this through Israel's eyes and ears, though it is essentially true for believers of both the old covenant and the new covenant. And I hope that if you have never seen how amazing it is that God would covenant with us, or that you've never taken seriously what it means for you, that we would all do so today. So let's turn together to Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Last week we went through the long chapter 28 with all its blessings and curses as were attached to obedience or disobedience. and, and that was really the conclusion of a super long sermon spoken by Moses, going all the way back to chapter four. So if you think I went long last week. <laughs> today begins a new speech given by Moses as we come into the home stretch of Deuteronomy. And what we have in chapter 29 is essentially another covenant renewal ceremony. Kind of like that wedding ceremony where a bride and groom make vows to each other, except that it's later on now and this in this instance God does all the talking. The promising, the reminding, and the warning. He's still really preparing his people to live out that relationship they have with him. Look at verse 1. It says, These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. Horeb, or Sinai, had essentially been their wedding day, but now they got this whole new generation of Israelites who weren't there, and yet are about to enter this new massive phase of life in the Promised Land. So God was like, listen, this is a reminder of who we are to each other. Let's keep it that way, shall we? Now, before we go any further, let's talk about covenant, as they're an increasingly, I think, foreign concept to us today. In our day and age, we tend to deal with people in one of two main ways. We either have a personal relationship with them, or we have a contract with them, you might say. So I I have a relationship of some kind with many of you. I'm a pastor, a mentor, a friend, even a family member to many of you. But I don't have the same kind of relationship as that, that I have with my bank, for example. Or I have a a contract with my cell phone company. Or for a hot water tank rental. A covenant is kind of like a combination of both forms of relationship, which makes it much deeper and more significant. There is an emotional, relational, love side to the covenant, and an official, binding, legal side to it. Tim Keller explains it well. He says that a covenant is a relationship far more intimate and personal than a merely legal business relationship. At the same time, it is far more durable, binding, and unconditional than one based on mere feeling and affection. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. And we've seen this rather stunning blend of law and love throughout Deuteronomy, haven't we? God gave Israel this high standard of laws to live up to, but at the same time, he lavished just an incredible amount of of love on his people. Let's hear how God says this here, through his spokesman Moses, starting in verse 2. It Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or or, or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God." And when you came to this place, Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. The point I think we can take away from these, these words here is this. God's covenant accompanies the saving of his people. God's covenant wondrously accompanies the saving of his people people. We see their covenant was rooted in their salvation history. In verse 2, it said, you've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh all his servants, how he brought them out of Egypt. The exodus, along with their miraculous wilderness journey and their, their military victories, these were all indisputable historical facts for them of their salvation. Thus, also their salvation we see was completely based on what God had done for them. Chris Wright says this historical grounding is as important for Old Testament faith as the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are for the Christian gospel. The biblical faith is in response to events in which God has acted. In both testaments the gospel is not a good idea, it is good news. Those whom God calls into covenant relationship, those from whom God demands covenant obedience, are those whom God has already acted to save. God's love already is demonstrated. Ours is awaited. For us, under the gospel, as we, as we visualize Christ dying on the cross, one of the things that we should see in that is God making a new wondrous covenant with his people. After all, do you remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood. And real, physical, historical blood was shed in order to bring us into our relationship with God. Just as with the Israelites, God's covenant accompanied His, our, it accompanies our salvation, just like it accompanied theirs. The cross really is the moment that Jesus that legally justified us, right by shedding the uh, perfect blood as a sacrifice for sin. But it's also the moment that Jesus most vividly loves us, uh, healing our relationship with God, granting us eternal access to Him. by his life. You see how we're both justified and reconciled, saved and loved. There's a new covenant that's been made. And we can trust that this covenant is going to be permanent and lasting because we believe that Jesus is now again alive and well. If you are not a follower of Christ, then we believe that you haven't actually entered into this covenant. God's already done the work. He's already acted to save you in love, but he's awaiting your response. Good news is that you can still respond today, and God will save you. So I would urge you this morning that you would come, and you would accept God's salvation today. You need it more than you know. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn to Christ. Believe in him as your savior. And all, all this can be yours. Really, God Himself will be yours. Your God. Maybe up till now this hasn't really clicked for you. That was Israel's experience. Verse 4 it said, But to this day, or up till now, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears. To hear. In other words, you're ignorant, blind, and deaf. How uplifting. <laughs> How would you feel hearing that? <laughs> right? You just don't get it, you don't see, and you haven't heard. But didn't Moses just say that Israel had seen God save them? Well, yes, they did. They, they saw the Red Sea split in two, but they didn't see with eyes of faith. They heard the, the thunder of Mount Sinai, but they didn't hear with ears of obedience. And their hearts learned God's message, but they still didn't love God fully. They just didn't get the whole scope, the whole significance of what God was doing. And in God's sovereign wisdom, he didn't let them understand it all. At least not yet. We wonder, why not? The fact is, we don't really know. But what we do know is that God was now opening their hearts and their eyes and their ears to respond. So whatever the reasons he had for concealing for a time, his end goal was to reveal to them. We have to decide whether we're okay with God being God and knowing things that we don't. We're going to come back to that idea later on. But the point for now is that God was now letting them see what he'd been up to all along. And what have you been up to? Verse 5. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. Those were miracles. And remember, these 40 years in the wilderness, these were, they were years of discipline for sin. And yet God says, even there, I was caring for you, personally leading you, guiding you, even making sure their clothes didn't wear out, supernaturally preserved. And then he provided them with with manna and quail and water for their sustenance. And why? Verse 6 says, you have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink. In other words, you've eaten these other things that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So it had been a journey of them learning that God was God. And learning that God loved them more than they'd ever love him back. He'd also delivered them, it says, from these powerful rulers and their powerful armies. And so all that God had done for them, given all that God had done for them, we come to verse 9 and it said, therefore. Keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. This was their part to play. The the proper response to their salvation and their covenant. They were to, it says in another version, to carefully follow the terms of the covenant. When we bought our family van, I signed a service contract and warranty came in very handy this week when it died. But I had to agree at that time to, uh, th- to a number of terms, such as bringing the van in for regular service and maintenance. Or on a deeper level, when I got married to my wife, the, the terms of our covenant included things like me promising to love her for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, etc., we should rightly wonder, if this covenant is so much greater than those, are we following the terms of the covenant God has brought us into? We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. But that grace does call for our lives to be radically changed by the gospel. As Philippians 1 puts it, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's one example of many. But we are called to live in light of what God has done. If Israel was to live life under God to the fullest, they had to keep these terms of the covenant. And Moses then basically says, this is serious stuff. Okay, look at verse 10. It says, you're standing today, all of you before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Can you picture that setting there? The mood? It's pretty solemn. It's also quite powerful. Like, everyone was there. Everyone's included in this. Here's the point we'll see. God's covenant is promised to all his people. God's covenant is solemnly promised to all his people. Moses makes it a point to to list out every group of people who were present there, from the oldest to the youngest, men, women, residents, visitors, the leaders, so elders and officers, even kings eventually, who would be equally bound to the covenant, down to the lowest, lowliest servants, woodchoppers and water gatherers. That shows us this remarkable social inclusiveness of the covenant. Verse 14 and 15 takes it a step further. It says, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. But it already said that everyone was there already. So who wasn't there? Future generations. And people who hadn't even been born yet. God's covenant was meant for everyone in the community as it was and as it would be. And Wright comments, says no matter who stands before whom in daily life, all find themselves standing in the presence of the Lord, a radically leveling posture. Today when we gather to worship, we worship in the presence of our God who is always with us. And no matter who you are, God's love and God's covenant are there for the taking. There may be people here who are smarter or more educated than you. There may be people here who have been Christians way longer than you. Kids, there may be people here who are far older than you, much more mature. Doesn't matter. For God, we're all equal. And vice versa on all the above, right? Some here may know less, or are far newer, or less impressive, or younger than you. But in Christ, they are just as much of an heir of his promise as you. Okay? God's promise, his covenant was promised to all his people. And Jesus has made sure this now extends way beyond just Israel as well. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 says to Gentiles, or non-Jews, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now when I say that God's covenant is promised to us, I don't mean that we haven't received it yet. I just mean to emphasize that God promised this to all his people. Notice Moses stresses this four times, that God swore this to his people. Starting in verse 12, he said, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant. You get the picture? <laughs> and if, if God promises or swears something, you can take it to the bank. The book of Hebrews tells us that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And God literally cannot lie or else he'd cease being God. And he's promised that he will look after and love his people for better or for worse until the end of time. So be encouraged by that. Take hope in that we we can hold fast to him. Now whenever we choose to love someone else, another, a spouse, a child, we open ourselves up to enormous risk. And it's like we give them a piece of our heart and those we love have the ability to break our hearts like no one else can. A a boyfriend or girlfriend can break up with us. A spouse can cheat on us. A parent can abuse us. A child can rebel against us. Or against the faith. When God chose to love his people, his love was guaranteed. Theirs was not. See, God's covenant is at risk of being abandoned by his people. God's covenant is tragically at risk of being abandoned by his people. We can see this in the really sobering warning that God gives Israel next. Starting in verse sixteen. He said, You know, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. You have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. So the message paraphrases there, it's like you've got you have got an eyeful of their obscenities. When it says you've seen their detestable things there, the word for things likely refers to, no joke, sheep feces. Moses is calling names, right? Deserved names, but he's like calling the false gods around detestable sheep droppings. So he's like, you've seen how the wicked live, you see what they've worshipped, therefore. Verse 18, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. It's so like you know what to look out for, so don't get sucked in. He wasn't just warning them of future dangers either. As I said, beware lest there be among you anyone whose heart is turning away today from the Lord. It was possible that some of them were already feeling that pull towards idolatry. We might wonder, well, how could this have ever been a temptation for them? But there was an attractiveness about centering life around things that you can see and touch. Things you can control here like an idol of wood or stone or gold, or like a house, or a car, or a paycheck, or a job, or a phone, a sports team, money, food, another person. There's also an attractiveness about following a God or a worldview that allows you to live however you want to live. And some of these other religions let people do all kinds of stuff. This is why so much of modern culture has bowed down to the idols of sexuality, or individual freedom, or consumerism, Or secularism, atheistic secularism, because these worldviews they give us the the permissive freedom to do whatever we want. So I'd encourage you today to beware. There are still many false gods that are vying for your lives. And your heart is deceptively wicked. Examine yourself today. Examine your heart, because your heart is deceptively wicked lest your heart be turning away from the only true God to go after idols. So one of my, this week, one of my spiritual role models, heroes, announced that he was leaving his faith behind. It was tragic. He wasn't careful. He let his heart he turned away. We still need this warning. Beware also presumptuousness or pride, thinking that you're immune to danger. Look how he continues. Second half of verse 18 says, Beware, again, beware lest there be among you a root-bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, who one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Hebrews 12:15 quotes these verses, saying, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now I've always assumed that that was talking about the resentful attitude of bitterness. It's actually a metaphor. right? It's talking about a bitter tasting, or even poisonous plant, that spreads through people like a a noxious weed might spread through a yard. Moses basically wants Israel to do some vigilant gardening. To always be pulling up weeds. Don't let this kind of attitude spring up or spread among you. But what's the attitude? What's the poisonous attitude to watch out for? Essentially, it's pride. It's said in Verse 19, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, he blesses himself or congratulates himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Never let yourself get overconfident and presume upon the grace of God. Let Anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Pride leads to false security, which can spread like wildfire. I've seen this countless times. If one person thinks that there is no harm in doing something wrong, they try to take other people with them. Come on, it's not going to hurt anyone. Or, don't be a prude. Or so legalistic. Or, come on, baby, it feels so right. Or, don't let anyone tell you how to live. But isn't that actually telling you how to live? (laughs) The poison spreads. The bitter roots spring up. So beware. Walking in the stubbornness of your heart is not safe for you or those around you. Daniel Block then warns that if the idolatry itself will not kill, then the curse will. Look how it continues in verse 19. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. So we see God's covenant is at risk of being abandoned by his people with dire consequences if it's abandoned. Like we might, whoa! Like God wouldn't be willing to forgive? That seems harsh. But this likely just means that this person would refuse to ever repent. And if they never repented, they'd be singled out of the whole community for judgment. Even though God holds entire communities accountable, he also holds individuals responsible and accountable. As Bloch continues, is that individuals who trample underfoot God's grace, render themselves the particular targets of divine wrath, and may not seek cover under the national umbrella, or I might add the church's umbrella, as they pursue their rebellious ways. However, that's not to say that there isn't collateral damage for the community. Because every community rebellion starts with individuals and then it grows. And as we saw graphically last week, if Israel abandoned God's covenant with them, the results would be catastrophic. Okay, We see that again here, much shorter though, in another warning of exile. Starting verse 22, he says, And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land, will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, "...the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt." and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it the curses, all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath, and cast them into another land as they are this day. Did you notice the, the root cause of judgment in verse 25? It said, Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them. the aftershocks of God's wrath would just leave people shaking their heads. It's like their children and their enemies alike would wonder, what did they do to deserve this? And the answer would be that they abandoned the one who only ever loved them. As some prophets put it, by breaking the covenant, they committed spiritual adultery. And like a a spurned husband, God would be justly angry. Furious, even. The pictures used to describe God's wrath here all have to do with fire. Verse 20 says he'd smoke against people. Verse 23, the land would be burned verse 24 people ask what caused the heat of God's anger and in verse 27 it says God's anger would be kindled against Israel the result is that returning to the previous picture of plants growing in the land Israel's plant would be uprooted and cast out like yard waste said in verse 28 "And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. We know by now this eventually happened. and The Israelites faced brutal exile. Now this passage tells us that both that Israel deserved what they got and that God is just. God was patient and merciful for centuries, but he must eventually judge evil. Right now, he is being remarkably patient and merciful with our world. Thus, we obviously wonder though, does this passage actually still apply to Christians today? And inasmuch as it warns you of the dangers of pridefully clinging to sin. Yes. However, I don't believe that our new covenant is as conditional as the old covenant was. Yes, believers still have to daily wage war against sin and idolatry in our hearts, but if Jesus' blood has truly redeemed you, then I don't believe that you can ever fully abandon him. His blood is too powerful to ever lose its power. His hand is too strong if you do actually turn your back on him for good, then I think it's likely a sign you weren't his to begin with. However, on a community level, I think we need to take these warnings very seriously. Because while individuals, whether or not they can abandon true faith, generationally we sure can. Just because someone is saved now doesn't mean their kids or their grandkids won't abandon faith. Just think of of all the churches in Ottawa who are churches in name only, if they even exist anymore. They they abandon the gospel of Jesus, and eventually they become as desolate as a burnt-out landscape. let us beware. Be careful. And may God keep us faithful to the covenant we have in Christ. Ultimately, let's thank God that Christ took the fire of God's wrath for us. We are utterly and eternally dependent on the grace of God. And even back in Deuteronomy, this passage ends with a little taste of grace. Okay, we'll see this. That God's covenant is graciously revealed to his people. God's covenant must be, and it is, graciously revealed to his people. Verse 29. Verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to to the Lord our God. That's a a crystal clear statement about God's sovereignty. That there are secret things about the universe, about life, about salvation, that only God knows. Things that are concealed that have not been revealed to us. Remember what verse 4 said, that God controlled what the Israelites saw and understood. Israel was still responsible for their unfaithfulness to God. But this means... As Chris Wright says, that the sovereignty of Yahweh encompasses even those things that oppose him. The words also express a deeper truth, namely that hearts understand, eyes see, and ears hear only through the gift of God. Knowledge of God, trust, and obedience are themselves gifts of grace at the same time as they are matters of human choice and response. Jesus himself said that he spoke in parables because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. He's quoting this. In other words, only certain people would truly hear and respond to him. I don't know if you've recognized this truth before. Without Jesus or the Holy Spirit, you and I are ignorant blind, and deaf. We, we need him to unveil our eyes. 2 Corinthians 4.3 says that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. But when he does open our ears and eyes and hearts to respond and receive him, it changes everything. Right? right before that in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, only through Christ is the veil taken away. When one turns to the Lord the veil is removed. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Have you turned to the Lord yet? You still have that part to play, it says. And glory awaits. Still, there are secret things that belong only to the Lord which we may or may not ever know. Such as why he would ever choose you or I to be saved. It's baffling. It's glorious. We naturally question what secret things belong to God but if he told you he'd have to kill you. Not really. But given how much love he has shown us, we should be able to trust him with a few secrets. So do you trust him? Do you trust him even when he doesn't tell you why? Even when he doesn't reveal why you're hurting? Or why some prayers seem to go unanswered. Or why some people never surrender to Jesus. As George Athos puts it, many things in life are indeed mysterious and impenetrable, defying human understanding or explanation, yet they are not beyond God's understanding or sovereignty. In other words it is unreasonable and unnecessary for any human being to demand full knowledge of all things before committing themselves and their future to God. He has every right to not tell us anything and yet he graciously pulled back the curtain anyway. He said But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. If we can't know the secrets, can we at least know what's been revealed? Well, yes. It's this. It's God's word. I mean, by Moses even speaking here, he was revealing things. God had revealed so much through his saving acts in history. And now he had graciously given them promises and commands and warnings. And these revealed things were theirs, it says, forever. They would never lose this. And this should have given Israel all the motivation they needed to be faithful to the covenant as it ends. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And the same goes for us. God has graciously revealed his will and his gospel to us. He's graciously called us to have faith and to follow him. So we should. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good. Works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Such is the the glory of the loving covenant that God has revealed to us in Christ. And if we love Jesus, his love controls us. We are his. He is ours forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if there is anyone here whose heart and eyes and ears have never been opened before, would you do that miracle of grace even now in them? Help them to respond, to run to you, even now. And Lord, for all of us, pray that you would so amaze us by you, with your grace that our lives would never be the same. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.